It is really difficult in the current political environment to get legislation passed through Congress where somebody is going to be required to spend money on something. Welcome, everybody, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to introduce the subject and the guest of our show today. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Patrick Coyle. He is a chemist, a control systems practitioner, and a well-known blogger. His best-known blog is Chemical Facility Security News. He's been at this, I think, over a decade. And uh, our topic today is one of the topics that Patrick follows uh, in some detail on his blog, which is industrial cybersecurity legislation in the United States. Then without further ado, Patrick Coyle. So, Patrick, thank you for joining us. Before we dive into the blog and legislation, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I started out in the U.S. Army, was in the infantry for 15 years. I uh, got an introduction to security uh, while I was in the Army when I served in, in a, as a battalion S to NCOIC for a while uh, in the Berlin Brigade. Got out of the Army in 1982. And after a bit, I ended up working at a chemical facility. Uh, went back to school, got my degree in chemistry, uh, and got promoted to the same facility from a technician to a process chemist. As a process chemist, um, I worked with a uh, at a chemical, especially chemical manufacturing facility. I did some work uh, with our uh, distributed control system, uh, not much on the technical side, but definitely on the, the user side, and did an awful lot of work uh, in my job collecting data and analyzing data from that control system. In 2006, I was laid off from that job and realized that I hadn't done anything to do move myself outside, of, get recognized outside of the organization that I was in. So I started a blog. And I decided that I would start a blog on chemical facility security because the CFATS program, the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards, was uh, introduced at about the same time. One of the things that piqued my interest was I got into the uh, cybersecurity side of this when Stuxnet came about. And Stuxnet just scared the hell out of me when I realized that I could no longer absolutely trust data that I was going to be getting from a chemical process control system because I was not ever going to be able to be perfectly sure that the data that I was getting came from that system and not from some outside attacker. And so I expanded the coverage in my blog to include the uh, cybersecurity. Now, another thing about me is i was involved in politics from an early age, got involved quite early on in looking at legislation. Uh, and I've got a, a knack for being able to understand the peculiar language of legislation and regulations. So that's another area that I've added into my blog over the years. And currently, uh, in, this, in the current Congress, the 116th Congress, 
I am following 83 separate pieces of legislation uh, in that Congress that have something to do with industrial cybersecurity. Wow. 83 pieces of legislation. Yes. And, and you, you have to remember, I'm, I'm quite broad in my description of what touches on industrial cybersecurity. There's a number of pieces of legislation where I'm covering them because I think with some small additions to language that they could address industrial cybersecurity uh, issues as well. There's a lot of topics here I want to touch on. Uh, you know, I'm a blogger as well, but let's let's leave the blog aside for a moment. Let's talk about you know the the main the main meal here, which is industrial security legislation. Um, before I start drifting off on tangents, um, you've been following the the space for a long time. What legislation do we have today for any aspect of of industrial security? Well, right now there to. There's only two pieces of legislation that have been on the books for a while that touch on industrial cybersecurity, to the best of my knowledge. And that is the uh, Maritime Transportation Service, uh, Maritime, MTSA, Maritime Transportation Security Act, which is the MTSA, which is the Coast Guard security uh, regulation for facilities and ships. And the uh, Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standard CFATS regulations. Uh, both of those pieces of legislation uh, do require uh, organizations within DHS to regulate cybersecurity. Now, the federal government has additional cybersecurity regulations covered on, by NERC, but those are not, in, not currently specified in any legislation that I'm aware of. So can you explain that to me? I mean, I know that the NERC standards are, you know, they have the force of law. They are regulations. You have to follow them or you get fined. You're saying there's no legislation that defined the standards? The interesting thing about the difference between laws and regulations is that laws tend to be broadly written. And the most effective laws give regulators broad leeway to establish regulations that are going to be effective in implementing the broad scope of the law. Uh, NERC is designed to make sure that the electric grid in the United States remains functional. And that's the broad scope of the NERC requirements. Is uh, The uh, federal requirements is that NERC keeps the grid operating safely, continuously, and resiliently. The regulator, the people who wrote that law at the time really weren't concerned about cybersecurity. It wasn't a thing. But the experts at NERC quickly realized that cybersecurity was going to, had to be part of their regulation if they were going to make sure that the grid continued to operate efficiently because a, a cyber attack on portions of the grid could have adverse effects on the entire grid. So that's that's where you have things where NERC covers cybersecurity, but was not directed to by the regulation, by the legislation. A point of clarification, um, you know, credit where credit's due. I thought that the legislation gave FERC the authority 
to regulate the energy sector, both electric and other kinds of energy like uh, oil pipelines, natural gas pipelines that are interstate. I thought FERC ordered NERC to produce the regulations, not that NERC produced them sort of on their own. Yeah, you're correct. And, and again, I don't cover FERC, the, the electric power generation side uh, as much as I do the chemical side, because quite frankly, I've never been in a power plant. I've never operated, you know, power distribution network. So my my expertise there is is not as strong as it is in the on the chemical side. Okay, so then let's stay with chemical because my expertise on the chemical side is much weaker than it is on the the power side. Can you talk about CFATS, the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standard? Um, you know, I, I've heard over the years, I mean, CFAS has been around for a long time. I've heard that, you know, I, I've seen that there's security stuff in CFATS, but there doesn't seem to be much of it. What's going on with CFATS and cybersecurity? CFATS is another one of those where the actual legislation did not cover much on the cybersecurity side, uh, but the CFATS regulations expanded on the overall requirement to address cybersecurity. CFATS was established in 2000, in December 2006 by Congress, and or, or actually Congress told DHS to establish the CFATS program. Uh, 2007, the DHS wrote the CFATS regulations from scratch and included two very interesting things. First, their definition of chemical facility was a little bit odd from most people's perspective. Instead of saying, well, you have a chemical facility produces chemicals, DHS decided, no, that's not what we're concerned about. We don't care about whether chemicals are produced or stored or, or whatever. What we're concerned about is, is what happens at a facility that has chemicals on its site if, they're, if it's attacked by terrorists. What would be the chemical consequences of such an attack? So... The CFATS program first started out by defining a chemical facility as any facility that had any one of 103 chemicals of interest on site. Now, these chemicals vary from nerve agents, you know, chemical warfare agents, to anhydrous ammonia, and a large number of chemicals that had risks that could potentially be used by a terrorist in an attack to have an effect on the surrounding community. What they ended up doing is they set up what they call a top screen. This is an online tool that a chemical facility that has one of these COI on hand at, the, uh, at or above the minimum concentration and amount listed in the regulation to report about the facility, where they are, uh, what's around them, what kind of other chemicals they have on site, and so forth. And then DHS took a, took a look at those submissions and decided which facilities were high risk for a terrorist attack. Once notified by DHS that, a that the facility is at high risk, facilities had to come up with a site security plan that met 12 risk-based performance standards because Congress very specifically told DHS that you could not establish a one-size-fits-all security program for a facility because all these facilities are going to be different, and which is very real case. 
One of the risk-based performance standards is RBPS 8, cyber. And this is where the cybersecurity portion of the, of the CFATS program lies. Now, these regulations came out for between 4,000 and 5,000 facilities ended up being initially declared to be high-risk facilities. That number has declined over the years as facilities made changes to their chemical holdings to, uh, quite frankly, save money so that they wouldn't be covered by the CFATS program. And the facilities, for the most part, about 90% of them, uh, of the current facilities under the CFATS program have established their site security program, or the, yeah, their site security program, the SSP, that DHS has come in and inspected that program and has now approved the program at most of the facilities involved in the, in the, in CFATS. So one of the interesting bits that, that I heard there, Nate, is the, the statistic that originally 45,000 facilities were declared high risk for the program. And today there's a smaller number of facilities. And it's because these facilities looked around and said, we don't actually need to store these dangerous chemicals here, or we don't actually need to store them in as many places. Um, let's just get rid of them or, you know, in, I think, I'm guessing more more rare circumstances, they might say, we don't actually need these chemicals. We could use those chemicals to the same effect. And they are not on the list. And so we've wound up with a smaller number of sites because people are just managing their dangerous chemicals differently and thereby reducing the risk to society. So, you know, to me, that was a, a, an interesting and, and very useful observation. Yeah, and that certainly seems like a, a valuable thing especially where it concerns uh, actually changing the chemicals you're using. Um, but it also, I don't know if this is a legitimate concern, but if you're moving these chemicals, you know, from many different sites to fewer sites, but further away from maybe um, where they would cause the most damage, um, couldn't you say that there are also costs involved with that? Um, for example... Uh, the costs of actually moving all of this stuff, uh, transport, if you're keeping all of these chemicals off-site, I imagine you, know, you not only have to protect the off-site location, but also the means by which this stuff is moved around. Are you having to move it more often or in longer distances? There's also the financial costs that may or may not be involved here. Um, does it is it really all just a, a positive thing, or, or, or are we just you know, moving risk from one place to another. Let me say first, I, I'm not a, a chemist. I'm not a, an expert on the, the chemical sector. So what I'm going to say is, is a bit of speculation, but um, it does seem reasonable to me that no one has told these people you have to stop using these chemicals. No one has told them you have to stop storing them here. What they've said is that uh, we have to evaluate the risk of these practices and put physical I mean, most of CFATS is about physical security. Some of it's about cybersecurity. We have to put security programs in place that are commensurate with the risk. And if the organization looks at the cost of putting that security program in place and says, you know, it would be cheaper just to move the chemicals 
then they've come out ahead. They've made the choice. It's not that the government is dictating that they have to do this. And, you know, if they determine that they're going to be, that, that, that the costs are unacceptable, I know, take an extreme example, I don't know, an organization that concentrates all of its chemicals at a single storage place in the country and now has to transport these chemicals all over the country to where they're going to be used versus, you know, what seems to me a, a simpler example, I might have, you know, a dozen warehouses in the city and I just randomly store whatever in these dozen warehouses. And instead of putting robust security programs, you know, terrorist grade security programs in place at a dozen warehouses, I might say, I only want to do it at, at one warehouse. And, you know, the, the change in my operating procedures is trivial. The, the additional costs, the additional transportation risks are, are almost non-existent. It's a city. People drive around the city. Uh, it would seem to me that there's a spectrum of possibilities and, you know, it's up to the, the organization that is working with the chemicals to decide which ones are, are appropriate to them and when they can save money by uh, concentrating the chemicals in a, a smaller number of sites so they don't have to have this terrorist-grade security program everywhere. I see. So maybe we could say that the value of these standards, irregardless of any given decision at any given site, is that uh, the 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 owners of these sites are thinking about these problems and making the right decisions where otherwise they might be more passive about it? To me, that's certainly one of the values of these standards. Um, you know, most industry hates most standards, most regulations, but, you know, certainly something that, that makes you think about it and say, you know, I could save money by doing things in a, in a safer way. You know, that's motivation for you. That's the kind of motivation I like. So that's how the sites of interest are selected. Um, how, you know, what, what happens then? Once, what happens once you become a site of interest and you have to develop a security program? The interesting thing about CFATS is that every year or two, depending on how high a risk the facility is, a CFATS chemical security inspector will visit the facility and inspect the facility to make sure that they are still in, a, in compliance with their site security plan. And if they're not in compliance, they're given a minimum amount of time to get back into compliance or pay appropriate fines, or in the worst case, get shut down by DHS. There have been very few changes to the CFATS programs over the years, quite frankly, because Congress couldn't agree on what changes needed to be made. So NERC-SIP has like 12 or 13 volumes of standards and requirements that, that people have to comply with. You know, I counted recently with something like 150 requirements split among 12-ish documents. Um, what kind of requirements do we see in CFATS? How, how stringent is this? Congress very specifically limited the DHS ability uh, to specify security requirements for the CFATS program. This has been one, this was one of the problems that the CFATS program had to deal with when it initially was started, that each site security plan had to be essentially negotiated with each facility because Congress said each facility is unique, so they're going to have to have unique facility security programs. And DHS cannot tell them what they have to do in their security program, which kind of caused some problems. In, 2000, in late 2007, uh, excuse me, 2009, the CFAS program finally published 
their risk-based performance standard guidance manual. And that manual has not changed since 2009. And the CFATS program divides facilities into tier one through tier four, tier one Tier 1 being the highest risk facilities and Tier 4 being the lowest risk. All of these still within the high facilities that are at high risk for a terrorist attack. Generally speaking, and this is not a hard and fast rule, Tier 1 facilities are facilities that have large amounts of flammable or toxic chemicals on site and have civilian facilities or uh, residential facilities close enough nearby that they're going to cause a catastrophic situation if those chemicals are released on site. Tier four typically are facilities that have quantities of uh, chemicals that can be used to make improvised explosive or improvised chemical devices. Those are going to be taken off site and then put together with other chemicals off-site uh, to be used in a, in a subsequent attack. So you, can ex- you would expect that the, the cyber controls that you would need on those different kinds of facilities would be different. So a facility would propose, in their, when they propose their site security plan, submitted it to DHS for review, they would set up and say, this is what our security policies are for cyber. And DHS would come back and say, well, you know, that doesn't really include a ch- an adequate change management process. And the facility goes, well, what do you want to see? Well, we can't tell you what we want to see. You've got to come up with something and tell us, and then we'll tell you whether it's okay or not. And this was particularly challenging when, in the beginning f- phases of the CFATS program when most of the chemical security inspectors were cops because there weren't very many people with chemical backgrounds that understood security. So they drew people from the federal government, from various policing agencies within the federal government to become chemical security inspectors. As time progressed, they started getting more chemical-oriented people into the program as chemical security inspectors and then as time progressed some more, they got more cybersecurity people involved in the chemical, chemical security inspector process. So they had some difficulties in ironing out what, these, what an appropriate site security plan was for the cyber portion. But a lot of this was due to the fact that each portion of the cybersecurity uh, of the site security plan had to be negotiated with DHS, the the Infrastructure Security Compliance Division, ISCD, which runs the CFATS program. Now, once the site security plan was formalized and, and approved by DHS, it then had the force of law at that facility. So you said that once a security policy or a security, you know, system is, uh, approved it as a force of law does that mean it never changes after that does the do the expectations of the dhs evolve as the threat environment evolves and as you know the expertise of the auditors and evolve what how's how much does this stuff change it doesn't change much and this is one of the the things that congress got kind of interested in this year or last year uh in some of the hearings they had when they were working on uh crafting legislation to renew the CFATS program. 
cyber was a big issue because first off, you have a one or two cybersecurity inspectors who are assigned to cover a set of facilities. But not all of them have any cyber background. Now, they, they have some cybersecurity uh, subject matter experts, uh, and they've tried to apportion those out to the various regional offices because the cybersecurity inspectors work out of regional offices across the United States. Generally speaking, facilities are allowed to propose changes to their site security program once it's approved. And then they, those proposed changes have to go through the same rigmarole of approve, submit, approve, submit, approve until you know DHS agrees with the final changes. There is no incentive for a facility to increase security measures. There's only incentives for them to decrease security measures. DHS has provisions in the CFATS program where they can say the general threat matrix has changed for your facility because of this, this, and this. You need to make changes to your facility security plan to meet the, that change threat matrix. I do not know of that taking place at any facilities. And uh, it's possible that it's happened, and I wouldn't know because all of this, all the information about these site security plans and so forth is, as you might expect, tightly held. And it doesn't do any good to have a site security plan if it's posted, you know, on the internet because then the bad guys could just, you know, look at it at their leisure and, and figure out how to bypass it. But there has been no system-wide change to the risk-based performance standards since they were introduced in 2009. This is one of the things that the GAO faulted DHS for, uh, particularly in the cyber area, because let's face it, a whole lot has changed since 2009 in the cybersecurity realm. Stuxnet, for example. At Waterfall Security Solutions, we are the OT security company. To help customers and other industrial owners and operators in this difficult time, Waterfall is extending our free Remote Screen View license program through the end of 2020. Unidirectional Remote Screen View is the most secure remote access possible for industrial sites. The design of Waterfall's unidirectional security gateways enables remote support while physically preventing any remote attack from reaching back into the protected network through the gateway's protective hardware. For details of the program, please visit the Waterfall Security Solutions website or reach out to your host at andrew.ginter at waterfall-security.com. Andrew, um, there's something that tripped me up in his answer there. At one point, Patrick says that facilities, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, only have incentive to decrease cybersecurity measures, not increase them. Um, I don't know if I'm misinterpreting his point. Yeah, um, I do go into that with him, but my understanding of what what he meant. I mean, if you listen to it the wrong way, it sounds like he's saying the, the legislation provides disincentives for security. I don't think that's what he meant to say. I think he's using the word differently. In my understanding, any penalty in the legislation is a disincentive. 
you know, uh, a fine or revoking a license to operate. I think the disincentives he's talking about are penalties for failing to deploy the security that an auditor expects, given the circumstances and, and given the legislation. Uh, an incentive in the legislation would be encouragement to do the right thing, uh, not discouragement from doing the wrong thing. It, encouragement might be like uh, subsidizing a fraction of the security uh, cost or maybe providing guarantees to insurance companies so your insurance premiums are reduced if you do the right thing security-wise. Those would be incentives. So I think Patrick is is saying that the legislation currently provides only penalties for non-compliance, not rewards for compliance. And he does come back to this point a little later in the interview, though I don't know that he was, uses the word incentive again, but he does vaguely come back to this. So I'd, I'd hold on to that thought and, and let's revisit this in a, in a couple of minutes. What leapt out at me in this part of the interview was the GAO report. This is the General Audit Office. This is the organization that, um, in a sense, keeps the, keeps the government honest. And in my understanding, they issued a report that was critical of the DHS, of the, CF, uh, the, the CFATS program, um, because the program really hasn't changed much in the 13 years since it was created. And the cybersecurity environment certainly has changed. And the technology that's used in industrial control systems certainly has changed in those 13 years. And so the report was critical of that. And, you know, this is a topic that I explored in the next couple of questions with Patrick to try and figure out what's going on here. So on one hand, I, I agree with you, but let me, uh, let me argue against you for a second. Um, the kind of sabotage or theft that the CFATS was designed to prevent, one could argue that that threat has remained more or less constant. Yes, the sophistication, some of the some of the, the tools, you know, Stuxnet, um, are more advanced today, but the overall threat is the same. It's still an you know a, a nation state or a nation state backed terrorist group that is the you know with a targeted attack that is the uh, the the threat. You know, if you look at NERC SIP, um, the focus there is to keep the lights on. And so anything that might trip the lights off is uh, is considered a threat. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff, a lot more stuff that'll, that'll trip a plant than will cause a catastrophe. So one could argue that, you know, the modern, the modern threat everyone's talking about is targeted ransomware. Right. Arguably, that the evolution of that modern threat is irrelevant to CFATS because targeted ransomware, what can it do? It'll shut the plant down. That's not what CFATS is designed to prevent. CFATS says it's on your head if the plant shuts down, just make sure there's no catastrophe. And to me, that seems to be an easier problem to solve, make sure there's no catastrophe, than prevent the plant shutting down. Is it reasonable that CFATS hasn't evolved much because, in a sense, the high end of the threat matrix has remained more constant than the low end, which is what NERC addresses? Yes, and you're absolutely correct. And this is the justification that, that the CFATS program has had for not making any major changes. And you're absolutely correct. A lot of the changes in the, the threat matrix for cyber are not going to cause the catastrophic problems. One of the problems, though, is that every pro program has got room for improvements. And I, I am really amazed at how well the CFATS program has held up over the years. Uh, this was thrown together in six months 
CFATS, the, the folks at DHS, put together a series of online tools to help them collect data and manage the, uh, the program that should be a model for any regulatory program that has to do with any kind of industrial operations. It, it makes it much easier for the DHS headquarters to isolate problems, to share information about problems with specific facilities that th those problems are pertinent to and not bother the other facilities that, that where that problem has no bearing. But there, there have been some things that, that the program was not designed uh, to address. For example, one of the, the metrics is cyber asset identification. The facility has identified hardware, software, information, and services, and has disabled all unnecessary elements were technically feasible. The facility has also identified and evaluated potential vulnerabilities and implemented appropriate compensating security controls. That is an excellent piece of recommendations for anybody's cybersecurity. Very broadly written, but concise and covers the whole gamut of things about you're identifying your cyber assets and their vulnerabilities. But there is no requirement there for ongoing validation that those controls are still adequate. An oversight because back when these were written, control systems were a lot more static than they are now. Control systems are still more static than IT systems, but they have changed an awful lot since then. So yeah, I don't think there's a, that the CFETS program needs a complete overhaul of their cyber standards. The only area where they're, in my mind, very weak is there is very little incentive and certainly not a requirement for anybody, any covered facility to report low-level cyber attacks to anybody in the federal government. And there is certainly no reporting system within the CFATS program where they could take the information where, uh, like you would see with an information sharing and uh, analysis center, where they could say, oh, this person over here has had a phishing attack where somebody gained some some sort of access to their control system. They beat it off. They, they recovered from it, no problem. But let's let everybody else know about that particular type of phishing attack so that they can be aware of it at their facility. But yeah, there's no gaping holes in their program, but it should be updated some. Okay, but the you know the concern I have based on what you just said is um, you know you, I got the impression now correct me if I'm wrong that if a an auditor came through and approved a program you know stamp of approval on the program that's it the program does not need to evolve even if two years later an auditor comes by who says who has much more experience in cyber and says you know first guy really didn't have the experience, didn't see the holes in the program, you really should fix X, Y, and Z. Are they going to come back and say, no, no, it's got a stamp of approval. We're done. It's over. And th this is one of the problems with the current program is that there, there does not appear in my mind to be any recourse. I mean, I would suspect that if somebody came into, you know, and, and, 
with some reasonable set of requirements that needed to be changed. Most of these facilities, if the if the requirements weren't too expensive, would go, yeah, you're right, and uh, we'll work on it. But you know, if, if they said, nah, I'm sorry, you approved it, it's written, we're in compliance, too bad. I, I don't think you'll, you'd have that kind of response in very many facilities. And if you did, I don't think there's anything in the current CFATS rules that would give the department any leeway other than if they told, were able to tell the facility that the threat matrix for their particular facility had been determined to have changed and that X, Y, and Z have now got to be covered in their site security plan. Let's come back to one of your comments at the beginning, uh, 83 pieces of legislation that are in progress that might be relevant to industrial security. Um, can you give me examples of a couple of these, you know, sort of maybe one well-known one and one lesser-known one that might be relevant to industrial security? Oh, sure. Let's start with, of those 83, the two that have passed, the two that have become law. The first one was uh, originally introduced in the Senate as S315, and in the House as H1158. Both of these are cyber response teams. These were pieces of legislation, a little bit different in, in both the House and the Senate, but essentially they authorized what used to be the US CERT and ICS CERT away teams. The teams that would go and, and help a facility deal with some sort of uh, cybersecurity problem. Both of those bills didn't do much more than that, authorized what was currently being done by CISA. And the only major change was they included language that would allow CISA to use contractors as part of the away teams. Another piece of legislation was the uh, TRIA, Terrorist Response Insurance Act. Uh, this is another uh, thing that came about uh, as part of the response to two th the, the tax in 2001. Reauthorization bill was passed in that, uh, which is 4634, HR 4634, passed in the House in uh, October of last year and passed in the Senate after, with some revisions in uh, November of last year and was added into the spending bill. Uh, the interest, the cyber provisions for that uh, was it added a cyber attack as a potentially covered terrorist attack. It would have to be a very large scale attack to be covered under the uh, TRIA. That legislation, the original TRIA uh, system covered insurance companies if they had to pay out too large an amount because of a terrorist attack. Is it fair to say that, you know, when, when I think about legislation, I think about, you know, criminal law. I think about, you know, this is illegal, you go to jail. Um, and, you know, I think about regulations. But is it fair to say that that's not the case here, that most of this legislation, these 83 bills, have to do with spending rather than with changing the law? Yeah. Uh, in, in some cases, it's it's spending. It's uh, very few changes in actual uh, criminal law. Um, I mean, there's things like uh, cybersecurity grants. There's been a number of bills addressing cybersecurity grants. Uh, 
there's requirements for smart technology of, you know, whether or not cybersecurity provisions have to be made uh, for some sort of uh, smart technology, smart energy, smart transportation, smart water systems, smart whatever. Congress is, is getting much more proactive about putting in uh, cyber provisions and, and you know, these general types of bills. There are some security type things. You know, we've got TSA pipeline security regulations that are they're trying to uh, get passed, though those don't go anywhere because they're going to require somebody to spend money. Um, most of the cybersecurity, the, the cyber bills that move forward have one thing in common. Nobody in the private sector is going to have to spend any money. And the things that move forward the best are the things that people in the, cyber sec- in the private sector are going to get money from the federal government for cybersecurity measures. It is really difficult in the current political environment to get legislation passed through Congress where somebody is going to be required to spend money on something. So, Nate, you remember your question a few minutes ago about incentives and disincentives. This is where that concept comes up again. What The point that Patrick is making is that um, the current you know, political climate, it's very difficult to get a law passed that includes a disincentive that says... Uh, I will fine you or penalize you unless you do X because doing something always costs money. And, you know, it's the, the current political climate is very reluctant to pass a law that makes businesses spend money. Instead, they seem to be passing laws where the government spends money on one thing or another, on away teams, on terrorist insurance, you know, anti-terrorist insurance programs, or presumably other incentives to business, cash incentives to take government money and do X or Y with it. That was that was my read on, on the how the incentive thing mapped against the current political climate here. I take your point, but when Patrick mentioned incentives earlier, he seemed to suggest, according to at least my reading of it, that manufacturing plants, facilities, these places don't have incentive to spend on cybersecurity on their own, which is what was sort of tripping me up because you and I, only a few minutes before that, we're talking about these these very high risk chemicals, you know, especially if Patrick's uh, in the chemical uh, space. Um, won't these these companies, these plants, these facilities um, see the risk reward involved in investing in cybersecurity, regardless of of any le- particular legislation? Um, is it really so implicit as as it seems? you and and Patrick are implying that we need to push everybody in this direction or can't they sort of get there on their own? The, the short answer is it, it depends. Um, if you have, you know, th- th- there are uh, businesses that are forward-looking. There are businesses that care enormously about their reputation, about their brand. And these businesses will, you know, generally see any major tarnishment of their brand as a serious threat. And yeah, they will take proactive steps. They see a business reason for putting security in place to prevent these things from happening. Um, but there's another whole sort of class of business that says, you know, when when I have a, a, a threat that is going to occur, I expect extremely rarely. And when it occurs extremely rarely, there's going to be a major impact on the business. That's what I buy insurance for. I don't put 
mitigations in place for those very low frequency events, I put I buy insurance for that. Um, and you know, especially you know, Patrick mentioned uh, legislation in place so that if a terrorist event causes a run on an insurer, the government will back them up. So that sort of makes the insurance option that much more attractive. Don't do anything about mitigating the threat by insurance instead. The problem is that this doesn't work for public safety threats. This might work for run-of-the-mill business threats, low-frequency business threats, but not so much threats to public safety. When you have you know, the public safety at risk, um, businesses need, bluntly, it, it, and now this is my read, but my read on the, the, the space for regulation, nobody likes regulations because they cost money. Everybody hates regulations. But what's the purpose of regulation for something like cybersecurity in a society? It is a, a way for the government to translate societal risk into business risk. They say, um, you know, if the the uh, if if the society is injured, if you know thousands of people die because of X, um, that's a, a cost the society is not willing to bear, and so they need to translate that into business terms so that the business has an incentive to address the thing. And the way they do that is reg- with regulations. They say follow these regulations, or we're going to fine you major fines or revoke your license to operate. Now. A societal threat becomes a business threat, and the business has to do something about mitigating that threat, not just buying insurance for it. So this is my dim understanding of this space. But I, I wanted to say that you know this this incentive disincentive thing is a is is a complicated thing. But um, there's a lot of of discussion of you know the right way to go about this, and there's a lot of debate about the right way to incentivize businesses. Uh, you know positively or negatively, uh, to address societal risks rather than business risks. Let's switch gears back to your blog for a minute. Um, you know, I know you from the, the chemical, chemical facility security news blog. You've been around forever. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the blog? And, you know, you said you set it up to get better known outside of the one company you work for. Did that work for you? It didn't help me get any jobs. So in that respect, no. If you've, you've been following my blog for a long time, so you know I'm an opinionated sort of person. And I have opinions on, golly gosh, everything. And I have a, a unique set of experiences and backgrounds that allow me to comment on a wide variety of different things. And you know, the nice thing about the blog is it gives me a chance to do it. Again, this is set up primarily as a chemical security blog. Cybersecurity certainly fits into that bill. But over the years, I've looked at uh, chemical safety quite prolifically. I've looked at chemical incidents and, and opined on you know what should have been done and what should not have been done in, in particular instances, uh, particularly in the planning process for how to respond to a chemical incident. Just recently, this just recently this weekend, I wrote about the possibility of two hurricanes hitting the Louisiana coast uh, within the same week, and what kind of problems that would have for emergency planning and emergency response. So, you know, I'm willing to to talk about just about anything, but you know, my main concern is chemical facilities and safety, security uh, are two pieces of the same pie as far as I'm concerned. 
you know, a chemical facility has an inherent responsibility to safely and securely use and control the chemicals and chemical processes that are on site and that they ship off site. You touched a minute ago on your new blog. Um, I confess, I went to your LinkedIn. I saw that you had a new blog. I clicked on it and it confused the snot out of me. Um, you know, and uh, so talk to me a bit about your new blog, if you would. Okay. I started this a couple of years back and I decided, you know, we, we have a lot of people telling us gloom and doom about why we need cybersecurity. People have been telling us how we're going to be ruined by cyber attacks for years and years and years and years, but we just don't say them other than the information disclosures over on the IT side. So I just said, say, well, look, let me look at what a cyber attack would actually look like. What, what a significant cyber attack on control type systems would look like. And first, remember, I am not a programmer. I am not a techno wizard. I am a cybersecurity, I'm a, a cyber user. So I can't tell you how the vulnerabilities are actually going to work. So golly gosh, okay, well, let's just forget how the vulnerabilities work. Let's talk about them in the broad scope. And so I read an article about a vulnerability. And I say, okay, well, what would that look like in real life? And I write a story. And I write a story in a format that everybody is used to seeing, a new story with quotes from various people involved, various regulatory agencies, police agencies, whatever, describing what happened. Golly gosh, the first couple, I had to go back and remind people, look, read the top banner on the top of the page. It says this is future news stories about what might happen because everybody's going, oh my God, this really happened. So I guess I'm describing things that really could happen. I actually got in trouble with a couple of the LinkedIn groups because I wrote the, uh, about the attack on a chlorine delivery truck in San Francisco that killed hundreds of school children. And some chemical organizations got all up in arms because I was making them look bad because they didn't realize it was fictitious. So I have to have even added a caveat down to the bottom of the blog saying, be careful, this is a future news item. Because this is the kind, this is the way people expect to hear about cyber attacks or cyber incidents, and I think I'm helping to contribute to people starting to think about what these things will actually look like, and that's the the whole point of that blog. Let me let me add something, Nate. I uh, you know I mentioned that I'd gone and read the the new blog. Um, you know, the top article I saw when I went to it was an article on the Huawei executive uh, who had been under house arrest in Vancouver for breaking American law and, you know, was uh, major court cases as to whether she could be deported to America. Um, the last I'd heard about that was a week previous to my visiting uh, Patrick's blog. And uh, the, the update was the, the court date had for the, the extradition hearing had been moved to April of 2021 and that the lady was still under house arrest. And, you know, you folks in the United States might not see this, but this has been a major political drama in Canada. Uh, there's been, you know, trade, there's been trade consequences with China. It's been a major political irritant between China and Canada. 
because an American law was broken in China by this executive and the Canadians apprehended her at the airport. Um, and so I see this article that says she's been released. What? She's been released in exchange for an American journalist that was being held in Singapore. What? You know, I go and scour the internet. There's no hint of this happening anywhere else on the internet. It would be on every major news site in Canada. Nothing, no hint of it. I go back and I reread the article and come to the fine print. This whole blog is about things that have not happened, that could happen, that have cybersecurity or safety consequences. Oh, this has not happened. So, yeah, it's uh, when when you go to the to his new blog. I mean, his old blog is is a, is you know is real stuff. The new one is uh, is a little strange. Be uh, be cautious when you read it that you don't freak out like I did. Well, thanks for all of this, Patrick. Uh, it's it's been eye opening for a techie like me to you know bring brought up to speed on this this legislative environment. We're coming up on the end of the episode. Is there a thought you would like to leave with our listeners? I am a firm believer that responsible regulation serves a very real purpose. And I think that we're approaching the year where we need responsible regulation for cybersecurity of industrial control systems. I do not think that the federal government has any interest in regulating or controlling the cybersecurity of the manufacturer of XYZ widgets in uh, Podunk, Iowa. That is not within the bounds of the area of control of the federal government. The federal government in regulating uh, interstate commerce has a responsibility to ensure companies who have a significant effect on the economy or safety of the United States are taking responsible and verifiable actions to protect, protect the economy and the safety of people in the United States from cyber attacks on their facilities. Now, how you define that, that needs to be discussed. But we, we really need to start thinking about cybersecurity regulation and how that reasonably and effectively could work. That's one of the recurring things that you're going to be seeing, have been seen, and, and will continue to see in my blog about legislation, cybersecurity legislation uh, here in this country. Andrew, something to take us out? Yeah, I'm, I guess my main takeaway here is that, uh, you know, Patrick's point that in the current political climate, we're probably not going to see what he thinks we need, which is, uh, you know, regulations for uh Industrial industrial control systems that that may have public impacts. So I guess I'm I'm not going to hold my breath for that. And what I did want to do was remind our listeners if you'd like to check out Patrick's blog, uh, Google uh, Chemical Facility Security News. It should be one of the top hits. It's on Blogspot. Well, then thanks to Patrick Coyle for speaking with you, and as always, Andrew, thank you for speaking with me. Always a pleasure, Nate. Thank you. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall Security Solutions. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>